Well, if you have your Bibles with you once more, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1049. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through this section of Matthew's Gospel. We've come to a very fitting passage to read and study together on this Palm Sunday morning. Matthew chapter 21. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And I'll speak for a few minutes today on this subject. The King is coming. Matthew 21. And this is what the Word of God says. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. If you only had one week left to live, what would you do? Well, beginning in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chronicles for us the last week of Jesus' life and what he did. And while all four Gospels chronicle the events of this week, For Matthew, the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem is something of a climax to which he has been building. For 20 chapters, we have journeyed with Jesus from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth, throughout Galilee, into Capernaum and Gennesaret, into the Gentile areas of Tyre and Sidon, to Magadan and Caesarea Philippi, into Jericho and Judea. But ever since the disciples identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew's narrative has been pointing us to Jerusalem. And now Jesus finally arrives. It would be difficult to exaggerate the significance of the events that transpire in the remainder of this gospel. Over a period of eight days, Jesus entered Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple, he challenged the religious leaders, he instituted the Lord's Supper, was arrested, was tried, was crucified, and was raised from the dead. James Montgomery Boyce says that this final week is so important that the Gospels give a disproportionate amount of space to it. Jesus lived 33 years. His active ministry occupied three years. But large portions of the gospel are given over to the events of just the last eight days. Matthew devotes one-fourth of his gospel to it. Mark uses one-third of his gospel. Luke gives a fifth of his chapters to the events of this last week. And most remarkable of all, John gives half of his gospel. Taken together, there are 89 chapters in the Gospels, and 29 and a half of these, exactly one-third, 
deal with what happened between the triumphal entry of Jesus and his resurrection. And here's his conclusion. Such is the case because these are the climactic events not only of Jesus' life, but of all history. They were planned from before the foundation of the world and our salvation from sin and wrath depend upon all of them. It would also be difficult to exaggerate the significance of the timing of these events. This was Passover week, a time when the population of Jerusalem would swell to unheard of levels. William Barclay estimates over two and a half million people gathered in Jerusalem at this time. And they were coming to celebrate this feast of remembrance, a feast that reminded them of the time when God rescued their fathers from slavery in Egypt and brought salvation through the blood of the Lamb. And now, Jesus, the Lamb of God and the one who was inaugurating a newer and greater exodus, was coming into Jerusalem during the week of Passover. This was no coincidence. It was a divine appointment. And while the presentation of Jesus as Israel's king is the major theme of the gospel of Matthew, Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem constitutes his first open and plain declaration of kingship. Here, Jesus asserts himself as the promised Messiah, the promised king who would come and save his people from their sins. But he is not a king for the Jews only, for his saving rule will extend to all the nations. And every element in this account has its significance for our understanding of the nature of Christ's kingship. And although this event is often referred to as the triumphal entry, it was by the way of betrayal and crucifixion and death that this king would triumph in victory for his people. And so would you notice with me this morning four statements regarding the king is coming. First of all, in verses 1 through 3 and 6 and 7, we see the preparation for the entry of the king. And this is what Matthew writes beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And then verses 6 and 7. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Matthew teaches us that after healing the two blind men in Jericho, and Luke teaches us after leading Zacchaeus to himself, Jesus made his final journey to Jerusalem. And as he approached Jerusalem, he also approached the end of his three years of earthly ministry which had been preceded by 30 years of obscurity. And he was about to reach the final goal that was set before him by his heavenly Father. But before Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem, Matthew says that they came to Bethphage in verse number 1. Now, Bethphage was closely associated with the Mount of Olives and with Bethany. It was a suburb. It was technically a part of Jerusalem, but it was separated from the city by the steep Kidron Valley. And Bethphage was approximately a mile east of Jerusalem, and it was within sight of the city. And when you go to John's account of these events in his gospel, beginning in John chapter 12, John gives us the background of what's happening as Matthew discusses Bethphage in verse number 1. And John tells us that while in this area, Jesus visited Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany six days before the Passover, most likely on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And it was here that John says that Mary knelt down and she anointed Jesus' feet with perfume that was very costly, and she wiped his feet with her hair. 
And while she was doing this, John says that the thief and the betrayer, Judas, objected to Mary's act of worship, claiming concern for the poor. And in response to Judas's hardened heart, Jesus famously said these words, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And John goes on after this encounter to tell us that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was in Bethany, they came to see Jesus. And John says they also came to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And because Lazarus was the living testimony of Jesus' divine power, and because Lazarus was a compelling witness of Jesus' messiahship, he was a threat to the authority of the chief priests. And John says in John chapter 12, verses 10 through 11, that the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death along with Jesus because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And this is the background that is taking place as we come to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. And in these opening verses, Matthew clearly portrays, and this is important to notice, friends, that Jesus is in complete command of the preparations for his entry into Jerusalem, as well as being in complete command of the events that will lead to the end of his life. All of these things have been divinely planned from eternity past. And so in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 21, look with me. Matthew says that Jesus sent two disciples to retrieve the animal on which he would ride into Jerusalem. And by this act, Jesus set into motion the final events that would culminate in his sacrificial death on the cross. Then notice in verse number 2, Matthew records Jesus giving commands to these two disciples. And he says to them, go into the village in front of them, where they would immediately find a donkey tied and a colt with her. And once they found them, they were to untie them and they were to bring them to Jesus. And with this simple command, Jesus is asserting the right of recognition a right which belonged to royalty, and it was also claimed by the rabbis. It is also important to note at this point in the narrative that only in his omniscience could Jesus have known that the donkey and her colt would at that moment have been where they were waiting to be found by these two disciples. Only his omniscience would have known that which means he was in complete control. Then in verse 3, it is apparent that Jesus also knew that the disciples would be questioned about taking the animals. And so he said to them, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now doesn't that strike you as odd? That Jesus would say, The Lord needs them. After all, he is the Lord. Does the Lord need anything if he is Lord? And in this instance, even though he is Lord, he needs them. And he needs them because all the events that are taking place were planned in eternity past. And he is in complete command to make sure that they are followed and fulfilled. And when you study Mark and Luke's parallel accounts of this scene... Mark reports that some of the bystanders who Luke says were the owners of the animals did indeed ask these two disciples, what are you doing untying the colt? And the two disciples spoke to them exactly what Jesus had told them. And Luke says they gave the disciples permission to take the animals. And we also learn from Mark and Luke that the colt that Jesus would ride on had never been ridden before. One commentator says this is important because it was a gesture of respect and honor to offer such an animal to someone. It was as if you were saying this animal has been reserved especially for you. And that's exactly what happened. This was Jesus's animal reserved especially for him.
And you'll notice that Matthew states that there were two animals, a donkey and a colt. And because the colt had never been ridden before, it was led by the mother donkey through the procession. Then notice in verses 6 and 7 that Matthew says that the two disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and because they had no blankets to pad the animals' backs and were not sure which one Jesus would ride on, the Bible says they put their cloaks on both of them. Luke, in his account, tells us that Jesus chose the colt because it was the smallest And it was the lowliest of the two animals, and he mounted it with the help of his disciples. Now, you might say, this is great. What is all of this background information for? Well, you have to properly understand the text, friends, if you understand the point of the text. And so the question is, why? With all of this detail in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Did Jesus enter Jerusalem in this manner? After all, if you've been observing carefully all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has walked everywhere he has gone. In fact, this is the only occasion we read of Jesus doing anything other than walking. So why? Why did he enter Jerusalem in this manner? It was simple. Jesus is making a clear statement. By riding into the city in this manner, Jesus is teaching us and he's teaching everyone who was present that day that he is in complete sovereign control over all of the events that will take place right down to the very detail of questions that would be asked when animals were retrieved. Jesus is in complete control. J.C. Ryle is very helpful on this point. He says, The plain truth is that our Lord knew well that the time of his earthly ministry was drawing to a close. He knew that the hour was approaching when he must finish the mighty work he came to do by dying for our sins upon the cross. He knew that his last journey had been accomplished and that there remained nothing now in his earthly ministry but to be offered as a sacrifice on Calvary. And knowing all of this, He no longer, as in time past, sought secrecy. Knowing all of this, he thought it good to enter the place where he was to be delivered to death with peculiar solemnity and publicity. It was not fitting that the Lamb of God should come to be slain on Calvary privately and silently. Before the great sacrifice for the sins of the world was offered up, it was right that every eye should be fixed on the victim. It was suitable that the crowning act of our Lord's life should be done with as much notoriety as possible. Therefore, it was that he made this public entry. Therefore, it was that he attracted himself the eyes of the wondering multitude. He is in control. And might I ask you this morning, friends, That if the triune God is sovereign over the details surrounding the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, don't you think this same triune God is sovereign over your life and the details in it? Why would you ever doubt that? Why would you come today doubting whether God is sovereign over the details of your life that are plaguing you this morning? He is sovereign over everything. So we not only see the preparation for the entry of the king. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, we see the prophetic fulfillment of the entry of the king. Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foe of a beast of burden. Now, do you have your Bible open? Do you see there at the beginning of verse 4? Do you see the very first word in verse 4? The word this? This word refers to all the instructions of verses 1 through 3. 
And it shows that all of these preparations are integral to the fulfillment of prophecy that Matthew is referring to in verses 4 and 5. Jesus' life and ministry were marked by two overriding purposes. To do His heavenly Father's will and to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah's first coming. And in verse number 5, Matthew quotes the prophet Zechariah, and he tells us in this passage that everything Jesus did, he did to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. Now, the prophet Zechariah prophesied to God's people after they had come back from the exile. This remnant of Israelites had come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to reestablish the city. It was a time of joy for them. It was also a time of struggle. The people had repeatedly seen the tragedy of failed kings. But Zechariah, in his prophecy to the people, held out hope of a promising day when God would send his king to rule and to reign over them. And in this most famous prophecy, Zechariah begins by exhorting the inhabitants of Jerusalem, whom he calls the daughter of Zion, to celebrate their future by rejoicing and shouting in the promise of the coming king and in the establishment of this king's kingdom. And Zechariah made this prophecy 500 years before Jesus came. And notice in the text, he predicted exactly how Jesus would enter Jerusalem. And he predicted exactly how the crowds would respond to him. And here in Matthew's gospel, we see prophecy fulfilled. And this is what Zechariah declares in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that Matthew refers to in verse 5. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in this one verse, Zechariah 9, 9, Zechariah prophesies four characteristics of this coming king. And he tells us, that Jesus would be a promised king. He says, behold, your king is coming to you. And when Zechariah uses that word, behold, he uses it the same way Matthew uses it. Wake up, people of God. Pay attention. Your king is coming. And he's coming personally. He is coming to you. He is the promised Messiah. He is the son of David whom God the Father has appointed to reign from David's throne forever. Behold, he's coming. And it's a reminder, friends, that God always fulfills all of his promises. And all of his promises, as Paul reminds us, finds their yes and their amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that clearly here in Zechariah's prophecy and in Jesus' fulfillment of that prophecy. In every promise that God has made to you through his word, he will keep it in Jesus Christ. But he's not just a promise king. Zechariah tells us he's a righteous king. Listen, he says he is righteous and having salvation is he. Unlike the corrupt kings in Israel's history, this king would rule and reign in complete righteousness, bringing salvation to all his people. And I want you to think about the importance of this for a minute, friends. The Israelites knew the tragedy of corrupt leaders. They had a long history of them. All you have to do is go back and read through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles. A long history of corrupt kings and leaders. And you and I understand what it's like to experience the corruption of leadership. And here's how we often talk about our kings and our leaders. We often talk about needing a good leader a good leader we never talk about needing a righteous leader 
We never talk about needing a holy leader. We settle for a good leader. But here's the problem. Our definition of good is not the same definition of God's. And Zechariah says that this king that is coming to God's people to save them, he is a righteous king. And that means he gets to define what is good. And he gets to define what is righteous. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the epitome of a good king, a good leader. The Lord Jesus Christ is the exact representation of a righteous king and of a righteous leader. And do you know what sets Jesus apart from all the other leaders of the world, even the ones whom you think are good? Is that Jesus is not only good and righteous, Jesus takes his goodness and his righteousness and he gives it to those who are under his rule so that they become good and righteous like he is. Now, do you know of another leader who can do that? Do you know of another president, another senator, another congressman, another mayor who can take goodness, their so-called goodness, and give it to those who are under their leadership? Only Jesus could do that. And friends, the reason why this is so important is because we are so quick to think, oh, if we just had a different president, oh, if we just had a different leader, oh, if we just had a good person in these offices, everything would be so much better. And I'm showing you this morning through the prophet Zechariah, there will never be a leader good enough. There will never be a leader righteous righteous enough. Only Jesus Christ can bring the kind of leadership that all of our hearts long for. So why would you settle for something less than this righteous king? He is the one who needs to rule and reign over everything and everyone, and he will. He's a righteous king. He's a promised king. Number three, Zechariah says that he is a humble king. This word humble, oh, don't miss this. This was worth your trip to church this morning. It's a similar word that is used for meek in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5 when Jesus gives the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a similar word to the word gentle in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29 when Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Because I am gentle, humble, and lowly in heart. One Old Testament scholar defined this word humble this way. It's so powerful. He says it means the whole of the lowly, miserable, suffering condition of Jesus as it is depicted in Isaiah chapter 53. This is his humility. And Zechariah shows us that in contrast to earthly kings who often rule in pride, Jesus came in poverty, in weakness, in affliction, and in suffering. And Jesus did not come to overthrow the Romans. He came to defeat sin, death, and the devil. And though he is sovereign Lord, he came as suffering servant. And can you hear this humble king say to you, to what he said to the weary people of his day. All of you, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are burdened with the pain of your sin, all of you who are burdened with the struggles of life, come, come to me. I'm humble, I'm meek, I'm gentle, I'm lowly. And in me, in me, this humble king, you will find rest for your soul. He's a promised king. He's a righteous king. He's a humble king. Zechariah says he's a peaceful king. Look there in the text. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah's use of donkey and colt stand in stark contrast to the war horse. If a king 
was going to go to war, he would ride on a war horse as a picture of power. But when he was not at war, it would not be uncommon for the king to ride on a donkey as a picture of peace. And the fact that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey speaks to his mission as the one who came not to overthrow the Romans as the people wanted, but as the one who came to make it possible for us to have peace with God. That's the whole point of him riding on this donkey. And you miss it unless you slow down and pay attention to what the text is showing us. And when you read Luke's account of this situation, Luke notes how the crowds cried out to Jesus as he rode on the donkey. But it's different than what Matthew recorded. Listen to what Luke says that they cried out in Luke 19.38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He was riding as a picture of peace, and they were claiming and shouting peace. And do you know what else Luke records in his account in verses 41 and 42? He records that when Jesus drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it. And this is what Luke records. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Writing as a picture of peace. I'm a peaceful king. I am coming to this place to give my life as a ransom for many so that you would have peace with your creator. And don't miss this other fact that is crucial to the understanding of the text. Mark and Luke, as I previously mentioned, recorded that this colt that Jesus would ride on had never been ridden before. Can you stop and pause and think for a minute the scene? Jesus riding on the colt, surrounded by crowds, the Bible will say, in front of him and behind him, shouting praises and exclamation to him. And he's on an animal in that scene that has never been ridden before. And that animal is at perfect peace. Because the prince of peace is riding on him. And the one who said the wind and the waves be still said to the colt, peace. Because he is a peaceful king. Oh, but friends, don't miss it. It gets even better. Because Zechariah says in the very next verse, in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 10, that the peace that Jesus came to bring was not just for Israel. Zechariah predicted that this coming king would speak peace to all of the nations and that his rule would be from sea to sea to the very ends of the earth. That's why we need this king and no other king will satisfy Only King Jesus will rule the ends of the earth, and he will speak peace to every nation. He is the only one who can calm all hostilities under his reign. The United Nations will never be able to do that. The President of the United States will never be able to do that. No rogue country will ever be able to do that. Only King Jesus can bring this kind of peace. He is the global king. And friends, he is ruling and reigning from heaven, and he is ruling and reigning over every leader, every king, every prime minister, every president in the world. And they are all doing his bidding so that he can bring full and final salvation. That's why Isaiah rightly prophesied, he shall be called the prince of peace. And I want to say to you this morning, as clearly as I could possibly possibly say anything else you will never have peace in your life until you have the king of peace in your life but look at your bible there's something significant and interesting that takes place in verse 5 matthew adds a fifth characteristic to zachariah's words and if you read over it quickly it's so subtle you miss it and what matthew teaches us is that he's also a saving king. At the beginning of verse 5, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 
11. And he replaces Zechariah's words. When you study Zechariah 9.9, this is how Zechariah 9.9 begins. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice greatly and shout, Zechariah says. Isaiah says in Isaiah 62.11, say to the daughter of Zion. And Matthew used Isaiah's words. He didn't tell him to rejoice. He said, say to the daughter of Zion. And when you study Isaiah 62, Isaiah says that Yahweh comes to Zion with a message of salvation. And Matthew inserts that opening remark, say to the daughter of Zion. It's as if he is saying to Israel, Israel, pay attention. This is your king. He's coming. And he's saying to you, come to me for salvation. It's an evangelistic invitation. Say to the daughter of Zion, this is the promised Messiah. This is your salvation. This is your king. This is your peace with God. And it's what God is saying to you. By mounting this colt, Jesus, in essence, said, if you want to know whom the prophet was writing about, he was writing about me. I am the king. Well, we not only see the preparation for the entry of the king and the prophetic fulfillment of the entry of the king. In verses 8 and 9, we see the praise of the entry of the king. Matthew says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In verse 8, Matthew says that as Jesus began his descent into Jerusalem, a crowd gathered and they spread their cloaks on the road before him and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Matthew says that most of the crowd, a better translation here is a very great crowd did this. This crowd was composed of the Jews who had lived in Jerusalem. It was composed of the crowd that had traveled from Galilee. It was composed, John says, of those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And don't forget, friends, if you've been following along, it was composed of the two blind men that he just healed. And Mark says in his account, that there were some who went before Jesus on this procession, and there were some who followed behind him. Luke described it this way in Luke 19.37. He said, the whole multitude of his disciples was in this crowd. I love even better what John comments. In John chapter 12 and verse 19, as Jesus was riding the colt and processing, and the crowd was surrounding him and singing his praises, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, listen, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after Jesus. Matthew says in verse 8 that the crowd, they spread their cloaks on the road. It was a sign of reverence and homage to a king to walk over those garments in the road, symbolizing their respect and submission to him and his authority. The other gospel writers say that some of the crowd took and cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. That is significant because it is a picture of Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, where John saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, listen, with palm branches in their hands. This is a picture of the final coronation that takes place in Revelation. And Matthew says in verse 9 that they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And what they were quoting was Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26. And the significance of this psalm is that Psalm 118 is the last psalm of the Egyptian Hillel. Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. And the Hallel means praise. And this 
collection of praise was a collection of praise psalms sung at all of the great Jewish feasts, including the Feast of Passover. And all of these psalms were sung in celebration of the Exodus, and they were sung in anticipation of future triumphs. And at the Passover, two of the psalms would be sung before the meal, and the other four psalms would be sung after the meal. And so when the Bible says that when they finished their meal, they sang a hymn and they went out into the Mount of Olives, this is what they were singing. And the words on the lips of the crowd as they exclaim shouts of praise are shouts of expectation of the victory that this king will win. It's as if the crowd was saying to themselves, doesn't this king come in the name of the Lord? Isn't Israel supposed to be restored under the son of David? Isn't this the season of Passover? Will not Yahweh send his Messiah to free his people from Roman tyranny, just like he did from Egyptian bondage? Are not these things supposed to take place? And so they shouted, Hosanna, save us now, son of David. Restore our glory. And Luke says, while they were shouting and singing these praises, the Pharisees came to him and told him to quiet the crowd. And Jesus says, if they don't shout, the rocks will. It was ordained that the king would be praised. But listen to me, friends. In spite of their shouts of praise, the crowd still didn't get it. They did not understand Jesus' mission. They were looking for an earthly king, not a heavenly king. They didn't understand that he didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer conquer sin and death. They didn't understand that he didn't come to make war, that he came to make peace with God. And the crowd wanted Jesus, listen, to destroy Rome. They did not want Jesus to deal with their sins And they did not want Jesus to deal with the hypocrisy of their religion. And I would say to you this morning that what was true of that crowd in Jesus' day is also true in our day. We want a Jesus who will be our friend and take us to heaven. We do not want a Jesus who will deal with our sin and our hypocrisy. This crowd didn't want it, and the crowd of our day doesn't want it. You say, well, that's a pretty bold statement. How do you know that's true? Because this same crowd that was shouting praises to Jesus at the top of their lungs is the same crowd that will abandon him in just mere days. They, like you and I, wanted a Jesus of their own making, not a Jesus of the Bible. When we see the preparation for the entry of the king, the prophetic fulfillment of the entry of the king, the praise of the entry of the king, and finally, we see the perplexity of the entry of the king in verses 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Matthew ends this account with a note of perplexity in Jerusalem. He says in verses 10 and 11 that the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred up. It's an interesting description that he gives because in chapter 2, in verse 3, Matthew records that when the Magi came to Herod asking for the whereabouts of the king of the Jews, the whole city was disturbed. And now that Jesus has entered Jerusalem with this triumphant praise, the whole city is stirred. This word stirred that he uses could literally be translated seismic or shaken. G. Campbell Morgan says that this word has the connotations of an earthquake. One commentator said the city quaked like it would quake on Good Friday at his death, and it quaked like it would on Easter Sunday at his resurrection. It stirred up and quaked. And notice, notice what the people in the city asked. Who is this? And in verse 11, Matthew says that the best response the crowds could give to the answer of that question was this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. 
Notice, just verses before, the crowd was shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And now, just moments later, when asked, who is this that you are praising? They no longer refer to him as the son of David. They simply refer to him as a prophet. And friends, their answer should ring a familiar tone. For the word prophet takes us back to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that the son of man is? And the disciples responded to Jesus' question by saying, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They saw Jesus merely as a prophet, as a teacher. And then there's the phrase, from Nazareth of Galilee. And you'll recall John chapter 1 and verse 46 when Nathanael responds to Philip when Philip came to him and told him news that they had found Jesus, they had found the Christ. And Nathanael says to Philip, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you see how fickle this crowd has become in moments? He's just a prophet. He's really not the son of God. He's from Nazareth. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. They were denying him already. But do you know what's most astonishing about this account? The disciples were just like the crowd. They didn't understand the significance. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, this is what John records in John chapter 12 and verse 16. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. When did they remember? When did they get it? When he was glorified. So the stage is set for the events of the final week of his life, leading to his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Listen to me this morning, church. Just as he certainly came the first time, the Bible teaches over and over and over the certainty that Jesus will come again. But listen, when he comes the second time, he is not coming as a king of peace riding on a donkey. He is coming as a warrior king riding on a horse. And John gives us a picture of what that day will be like. Now listen to me. Listen carefully to me. What I'm about to read is Scripture, straightforward Scripture. This is the Word of God, divine revelation, saying what it's going to be like, what it's going to look like, and what's going to be experienced when Jesus comes again. And don't miss it. And if you are an unbeliever this morning, These words that I'm about to read to you from the Holy Word of God should cause you to tremble and quake at the sound of what's coming when Jesus comes again. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21, and this is what the Bible says. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, 
Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That is how this king is coming again to rule and to reign. And Matthew has presented for us Jesus as God's king. And we have seen that he will be rejected by many and believed on by only a few. And just as he came the first time, he will certainly come again. And so my question for you today, friends, is where do you stand with Jesus? This is the most important question that you could ever answer in your life. It is of eternal significance because every single one of us is going to live in eternity somewhere forever. We're either going to live in the glory and the presence of heaven or we're going to live in the darkness of pain and suffering in hell. And where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ determines which of the destinies you will experience. Is Jesus your king? Is he the son of God? Is he your savior? Have you trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins and for the salvation of your soul? Or are you like the crowd? He's merely a prophet. He's merely a teacher. Student, where do you stand with Jesus this morning? College student, where do you stand with Jesus this morning? Children, where do you stand with Jesus this morning? Adults, where do you stand with Jesus? Let's pray. God, we give you thanksgiving and praise.